0: Today on Ag News Daily. Quite often if an animal is a small animal such as a dog or a cat and it's been attacked by a wild animal, there is trauma. And so trauma on a limb or um, a bite wound on an animal is
1: a tip. Good afternoon and happy Thursday from the Ag News Daily podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney,
2: I don't know if you can tell, but I'm a little bit stuffy today. Yes, I could tell that earlier this morning when we chatted Ashton. Yeah, I woke up, unfortunately. My ears
1: were hurting, my throat was hurting, my nose has been stuffy, I've had a headache. So I think it's just that time of year when everything is starting to cool down, the weather's changing, it's getting a little bit more windy, dusty here in Lubbock. So I anticipated that this was gonna happen within the next week or so.
2: Yes, it is usually this time of year when we start to get a little allergies, a little hay fever, a little little summer end of summer cold. So we hope you're feeling good. We appreciate you sticking through it on the podcast today.
1: Well, of course, it's nothing I can't handle. I've always been, as a kid at least, had really bad allergies. I would get hay fever all of the time, sinus infections like once a month in the winter and the fall months. So, you know, nothing I can't handle. So I am chugging on through to talk some news today. So Delaney, how about you kick things off for us? What do you have to talk about?
2: Well, in the same vein, since we're talking weather, we're gonna chat weather tomorrow with Eric Snodgrass of Nutrien Ag Solutions, but ahead of that conversation, you know, we've we talk weather pretty much daily, it seems like on the podcast at this point, Ashton. But as temperatures are beginning to shift, we're seeing a La Niña pattern develop some below normal temperatures in the Central Pacific into the southern portion of South America. And so we are seeing La Nina status, indicating that conditions are going to be dry and typically hotter. That signals by looking at ocean temperatures that have really cooled off both at the surface level and below the surface level. And so we'll get Eric's take on this tomorrow. But really, I think the reason we want to continue to watch this down in South America is because of their competition with the united states and if they do have a hotter and drier than usual summer down there then that could be indicative of what crop is going to come out of the field but ashton while i'm talking south america i also wanted to throw this at our listeners because you you know as we've been talking a lot about fertilizer we've been talking about it more so from a u.s perspective and while we did see fertilizer touch some new highs today in the anhydrous market we are continuing to see that push higher, but we've seen natural gas prices come down in some areas, which could potentially have its impact in the fertilizer market. But Ashton, the one thing we haven't really talked about that really, until I read this article, hadn't even crossed my mind is how this fertilizer price and fertilizer potential shortage is going to play out in other markets outside of the United States. And so according to the head of S&P Global Plat agriculture and biofuel analytics which is a private firm they're indicating that with these increased fertilizer prices we could see farmers down in brazil switching around three million acres of corn to soybeans due to the less intensive fertilizer needs that accompanies soybean crops and so in south america Farmers down there are getting ready for their second corn crop, their Safrina corn crop, which will be planted in March. And apparently a lot of those farmers don't have fertilizer needs locked in yet either. So we could see a pretty drastic shift in acreage potentially here in the United States next summer, next spring, but also down in South America, which will definitely play out in the world markets.
1: I was right there with you, Delaney. I hadn't thought of what the fertilizer shortage is really going to do outside of the U.S., and honestly, it's really concerning, so definitely going to keep our ears on the ground when it comes to any fertilizer news. But since you kicked things off on an international level, I will follow that up with some news coming out of Britain. We have been following along with the story of the shortage of workers in the ag industry, and More specifically, we've looked a little bit more into how it's going to be affecting the pork industry over in the UK. And we've seen some news come out that Britain is going to offer six-month emergency visas to 800 foreign butchers to avoid a mass cull of pigs. And it was also said that these butchers would be needed to clear the backlog and announced that private storage aid to help slaughterhouses, which are known as abattoirs. If I'm hopefully saying that correctly, I don't know any fancy British words, but that's what it's known as over there, but they're going to be needed to temporarily store meat. And there have been a couple of different things that people have been pointing their fingers at on what's causing this shortage of workers. You know, COVID-19 has been one of them and Brexit has been another. And we have seen now that the UK has denied that Brexit was the, the main issue constricting labor at, labor across supply chain. So at least we have that question answered
2: that is good and i don't know think i don't know that i know how to pronounce that word either ashton so i hopefully think you did the best job
1: yeah you know i am a a southern girl through and through like i said don't know any fancy british words so i hope i did it justice
2: well you did your best so that's all that matters but ashton i want to follow up on a story that you reported on yesterday with more than 10,000 john deere workers that have officially begun striking this morning, Thursday morning, or technically at midnight, after their negotiating team and the John Deere Company could not come to terms on a new contract. So I believe you talked about this, but in case folks didn't hear yesterday's episode, essentially what they're trying to do here, the workers, which are represented by the United Auto Workers Union, previously voted overwhelmingly to reject a contract offer from John Deere management that would raise wages, but would slash retirement benefits for current employees and pass on a greater portion of healthcare costs to their workers as well. It sounds like they have not been able to come to any terms yet. And so now we do see about 10,000 workers on strike officially today. And, Apparently, according to some salaried non-union employees of John Deere, the company had been internally communicating that they did not believe a strike would actually happen. And so they, I guess, decided to roll the dice on this, but uh, nothing was decided. So workers go on strike now. I think negotiating teams are going to continue to represent the workers and try to come to an agreement here. But until then, this will lead to some Strikes and major delays in manufacturing. And Delaney,
1: I also read concerning John Deere and the strike that the last time that John Deere has seen a strike was in the 1980s farm crisis, Mm. and it lasted 163 days. And we're already experiencing so much trouble when it comes to equipment and those kinds of things. And we're, you know, kind of dab smack in the middle of harvest. So I'm hoping that we don't see another 163 day strike.
2: Yeah, that is a crazy amount of time. I don't know if those workers are being paid. I don't know enough about how the union systems are set up, like if they have funds that pay workers in the event of strikes. But if not, you know, those people are going without paychecks.
1: Yeah, I don't know enough about it either. But from a customer standpoint, it has been said that there's a contingency plan already in place to meet customer needs. So we have that to kind of fall back on right now, but we're going to keep looking out to see if a agreement can hopefully come to. But I just have one other story to talk about here, Delaney, and it is concerning our forest industry. I say our forest industry really kind of land ownership as well. I thought this was pretty interesting since At the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, our timber industry and our forest industry were really hurting. And so it doesn't look like it's hurting too much more for Sierra Pacific Industries as they have acquired Seneca Jones Timber Company and Seneca Sawmills, making it the nation's largest private landowner. It was a 175,000-acre acquisition, and it brings this family-owned company to 2.3 million acres. And that just surpasses the runner-up, John Malone, of 2.2 million acres. And that's a lot. That's a crazy amount of ground to own. a a ton. And it's not just like it's open fields or anything, it's forests. So just thinking about the amount of trees and the amount of timber in there, it really just kind of blows my mind.
2: Yeah, that's a big one that I cannot even fathom that, Ashton.
1: Yeah. And this acquisition, it's going to bring more jobs and growth to the state of Oregon and to this company. Again, that's SPI. So I thought it was pretty interesting. And I just wanted to bring that to your attention since we've kind of been talking a little more here about land ownership and, you know, the price of land, those kinds of things.
2: Absolutely. That's an interesting one to end on for today. And I really don't have any other news for today other than Shadding Markets. So what do you say we hop in here? Let's do it. Well, we certainly had a turnaround day today in the markets as we saw green finally across the screen for the entire grain complex. December corn today up four and a half cents to end at 5.16 and three quarters. The March up three and three quarters cents, closing the day out at 5.25 and three quarters. Soybeans today were able to break back above $12 in the November contract, closing 11 cents higher to end at 12.06 and a quarter. January putting on nine and a half cents today to close at 12.15 and a half in the wheat pits. December Chicago contract adding six cents today to close at 7.24 and three quarters. And in March, five cents higher today to close at 7.36 and three quarters. Hopping over into the livestock markets today, Ashton, we saw green across the live cattle and feeder cattle complex and weakness in the lean hog market. December live cattle up a dollar 30 today to close at 13030 the February up a dollar 10 and at 13465 feeder cattle today as i mentioned higher with the november contract adding a dollar 17 and a half to close at 16215 the january adding 90 cents to close at 16235 and in lean hogs, we've seen some continued weakness. Definitely a conversation we're gonna to have to have on next week's Market Monday discussion. December shedding 82.5 cents to close at 77, and a half. The February down 55 cents to close at 80.30. And lastly, wrapping things up here with the class three dairy milk futures. November up 53 cents. Day closed at nineteen thirty-eight, the December up thirty-nine cents to close at eighteen seventy-seven. Ashton, without further ado, fill us in on who we're talking to for today's interview.
1: Today we are talking to Dr. Joanne Mackey about rabid vampire bats. Well, I am very excited for our conversation today because I definitely find this topic very interesting. So we are going to kick things off here with our guest, Dr. Joanne Mackey, who is a vet with 20 years of experience dealing with rabies and some other things that I'm going to definitely let her touch on because Dr. Mackey, I I think you're a little bit more knowledgeable than I am when it comes to those things. I'd be happy to, Ashton. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. So, Dr. Mackey, before we really get started talking here about these rabid vampire bats that we're seeing in the southern portion of the U.S., let's learn a little bit more about you, because before we started recording here, you were telling me about your experience and really the work that you've done in the past. So why don't you go ahead and tell our audience about it as well?
0: Glad to. Um, I'm a veterinarian by training. I was interested immediately during vet school to go into research. And so I focused on research and development of vaccines. I've been working in the field of rabies um, since getting out of veterinary school and within the pharmacy industry developing vaccines against rabies. So I'm interested in wildlife rabies as well as domestic animal rabies. Primarily here in the U.S., I'm focused on the efforts that Boeing or Ingelheim is doing to prevent rabies in wildlife, but also globally with the vaccination of dogs to prevent humans to be exposed to rabies um, and suffer from rabies.
1: So when we are talking about the risks that we're seeing right now, like I said, in the southern portion of the U.S. for our our cattle producers, they're seeing some of these rabid vampire bats. What's the situation there?
0: Well, yes, the situation is that we don't have the bats here yet, but they are very close to the border between Mexico and the United States. Particularly in the state of Texas, there is a program that the government has uh, put together that is a surveillance program so that they can detect the potential presence of vampire bats when they come across the border into the U.S., Um, There's some ecology work that has been done that shows that there are vampire bats expanding their habitat into north central um, Mexico. And some of the sightings have shown that the bats are within 35 to 50 miles of the U.S. border. So they're not here yet. But we do know that with cattle movements and animals moving back back and forth across borders, The government is wanting to have this awareness raised that this is a potential issue and Boeing or Ingelheim, since we're very focused on rabies and disease prevention, um, we thought this was an excellent opportunity to have a partnership with the USDA um, APHIS Wildlife Services team to promote what they're doing and raise awareness of farmers in this area.
1: So, Dr. Mackey, I am not sure if this is something that we have seen before. So can you kind of answer that question for me? Have we really seen such a risk such as this one to our wildlife when it comes to, you know, rabid animals, rabid bats, those kinds of things? Sure. Um,
0: In the United States currently, we have eliminated the canine variant of rabies. So we don't see that variant of virus circulating in unvaccinated dogs or coyotes. And that's the variant that is a problem globally. But here in the United States, through our vaccination efforts, that problem is a minor one. But what we have in the United States are rabies exposures to humans, most often through unvaccinated pets, and the virus is in wildlife reservoir species. So in the eastern United States, if you see a rabid animal, most often it is a rabid raccoon. If you live in the south of central uh, United States or north central United States, it apparently is skunks. Skunks are the animal that are most often rabid in the Midwest. In the Southwest, however, the gray fox and skunks as well. And then in addition to that, we have bat rabies, but it's not vampire bat per se, but there are rabid bats in really all over the United States, but there are species in the Southwest area that um, have been recorded of having rabies um, infections. We tell people in the US, primarily your biggest risk is wildlife, but most often the exposure to humans is either through an unvaccinated pet, a cat or a dog, or a livestock species such as a cow or a horse that have been bitten by wildlife when they're out in the pasture and that animal becomes rabid and exposes the owner.
1: Gotcha. So I kind of have a two-parter here when it comes to rabid livestock and more specifically cattle since that's kind of the the topic of discussion today one what are some symptoms that our producers could be looking out for in case their herd has you know been attacked or been been bitten by a rabid animal and number two here is what are some things that kind of happen to these animals once they are bitten Sure. Um, So to answer your first question, I think it's
0: building the awareness in animal owners is an excellent step because if you're thinking about rabies or at least know that rabies is in your area, when you see a sick animal, that disease should cross your mind. Most veterinarians are very well trained to consider rabies whenever they see an animal that has neurological symptoms. And so rabies presents itself two ways. Most often in cattle, there is a form called the paralytic form or the dumb form of rabies where the animal has problems walking. It looks like it might be drunk or weaving, that it's just not behaving right. It may act like it can't see well. Uh, Rabbit cattle often have, um, it appears that they look like they're choking and they have saliva being produced. And they are, um, when they... Call or when they move, their voice sounds very different. So, the number one concern in cattle is quite often a rabbit cow looks as though they are choking on something, and an owner will say, Let me see if I can see in its mouth and remove whatever has caused the obstruction. So, that needs to be in someone's mind if they see a cow that looks to be choking, particularly if it's also having other signs. Um, rarely in cattle, but it can happen. There's another form of rabies called the furious form of rabies. And that's the one that people think about when they think of rabies in general. It's either the that wild um, animal that is frothing at the mouth that attacks people during the daylight hours that has lost its fear of man. Those are the typical wildlife like foxes and raccoons and coyotes. Uh, those type of species can get the furious form. Cats frequently become furious if they're infected with rabies. So those types of behavior, animals that have lost their fear and will attack you are potentially rabid. But then also the ones that livestock producers should think about are those animals that are having other neurological signs that um, are more along the lines of the paralytic form. But a veterinarian, any veterinarian has been learning this from the very beginnings of vet school, and they can definitely help producers um, evaluate that animal and not put themselves at risk for contracting the disease. The course of the disease depends on uh, many factors, but quite often, if an animal is a small animal, such as a dog or a cat and it's been attacked by a wild animal there is trauma and so trauma on a limb or um, a bite wound on an animal is a tip that that animal should be considered possibly exposed to rabies um, cow, cows or horses are often bit on the nose or on their face because they're putting their face down towards the rabid animal or they may be bitten on their legs so Bite wounds do heal quickly in large animals and they can be missed, but any kind of trauma to a leg or a face is also um, a concern. And if a bite wound is noticed, then that animal should be considered suspect and its vaccination um, history should be prevented, should be given to the veterinarian.
1: So Dr. Mackey, I want to talk about the economic risks that we could be seeing if these vampire bats do come over into the U.S. There seems like there could be a lot of damages if they really attack some of our U.S. cattle herds. So do you have any numbers or anything that we can kind of look at to see what the economic loss might be?
0: Yes, um, thanks. That's a great question. Uh, There have been studies done in Mexico because the uh, Mexican farmers have been dealing with vampire bats for decades. And so studies have shown that these animals harass cattle herds. And there's an estimate of about $47 million per year uh, for the livestock industry in Mexico. And these losses are actually due to the harassment by the bats but also the blood loss caused by the bats so um, cattle that are fed on by vampire bats are repeatedly lose quite a bit of blood you can imagine that that will impact their ability to put on weight if they're a beef cow or a cattle or if they have um, dairy they will have decreased production um, their milk production will go down uh, there are bite wounds associated with the vampire bat feeding which can have um, problems for the animals themselves. But the also the biggest piece that is important to think about regarding not only livestock losses, but if humans are exposed, those humans have to go in and go through a process called post-exposure prophylaxis. And that's where you are uh, evaluated and treated at the hospital for a rabies exposure. And the Cost for the person um, varies, but it is several thousands of dollars to have a person uh, go through this post-exposure prophylaxis. So there is a human side of this and a cost associated with it, but the animal losses are significant based on the constant harassment of the animals by the biting bats.
1: Well, Dr. Mackey, as we kind of round things out here, I just have one other question for you. And it's concerning the USDA program that you had mentioned earlier. If any of our audience wants to get in contact with somebody at the program, get involved, anything like that, want to know a little bit more information, how can they get that info? Sure. I'd
0: be glad to help you with that. Um, The campaign is originates with the USDA Wildlife Services. So if someone Googles vampire bats and USDA Wildlife Services, there is some information on the um, internet that can connect to uh, individuals that will provide them with additional information. But I can tell you the program right now is doing surveillance in multiple states. So in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona, um, I believe in Florida, they are looking at Animals that are coming across the border, but also are in livestock facilities, trying to see if they have any bite wounds or if they have um, signs of rabies. So the request is is that we would like to spread the word about the vampire bat bites that may appear on livestock or horses, and we want those um, individuals that suspect this to reach out to their veterinarian, but also submit any animals that may be considered. Um, potentially rabid to su- submit those rabies cases to diagnostic labs so we can detect potential infections early on when when vampire bats actually enter these areas. So we are conducting this outreach and we've had a long-term partnership with USDA. And with working through USDA, we hope to continue to address rabies in wildlife, but also help support the U.S. farmers and ranchers in producing their cattle. Um, So USDA Wildlife Services is managing the program. They are conducting outreach, but they are also conducting surveillance. And their website should be able to lead you to um, managers of the programs.
1: Well, Dr. Mackey, it has certainly been interesting to get to know a little bit more about your work and get to know a little bit more about things that we should be looking out for, particularly in that southern portion of the U.S. We definitely appreciate you coming on and speaking to us. I was glad
0: to do it, Ashton. Thank you for your time.
1: Thanks again there to Dr. Mackey for joining us to talk about that situation kind of going on in the southern portion of the U.S. Hopefully we don't see those bats come in from Mexico, but we will see about that.
2: Certainly we will. It's always interesting, the topics and the variety of things we talk about. You know, I, I don't remember who I was talking to the other day, Ashton, but they're like, how do you find enough content to talk about on a daily podcast? I said, well, there's always new things populating in the world of agriculture.
1: There certainly is Delaney. And I just want to leave everyone, including you, on a kind of Thursday funny here. My friend has been working on his family feedlot since he graduated last May. And he just sent over a photo. He was getting some corn grain out for feeding time. And he found a dog in in the corn. So just a corn dog for you in the (laughs) feedlot.
2: That's a good one, Ashton. That's kind of a dad joke. I like it.
1: But hopefully that gets our audience through the Thursday afternoon and over to Friday before we start our weekend. But folks, you can go ahead and follow us for more funny dad jokes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at AgNews Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go?
2: Let's let them go.